All right. Welcome to episode 59 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Samir Chopra. He is a professor of philosophy at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. He's the author of several books, including A Legal Theory for Autonomous Artificial Agents. Today we're going to be discussing his article on Aon.co, The Usefulness of Dread. Welcome, Samir. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. And so the first thing we're going to talk about, obviously, is in terms of the article, we want to define what it means to be anxious and what anxiety meant in the context of, let's say, philosophy, right? And especially in the context of your life. And so I want to define anxiety first and what it meant to you in the article and then kind of sort of get to this to our discussion. So Samir writes, anxiety is insidious, more than just a simple fear. It is all at once a fever and an occupation, an affliction and a constitution. And anxiety is a lens through which to view the world, a coloration that grants the sufferer's experiences their distinctive hue, which was incredibly profoundly put. And then so Samir, so can you please tell us about your first experience of existential anxiety and how it altered the way you perceive the world? Thanks very much for quoting from that piece. Uh, I want to say, you know, the way I wrote that piece, I began that piece with a couple of autographical notes about traumatic incidents in my, I guess, my childhood and my young adulthood. And I would say, really, I started thinking about this profoundly, mostly after my mother passed away when I was 26. And in the years, or actually in the few months following my mother's passing away, which was, you know, quite brutal and painful, she died of cancer. Uh, and so when I came back to the States after having attended to her funeral and having dealt with the aftermath of her death, I noticed a certain change in a certain kind of feeling that I'd always had in my life. Uh, I'd always been anxious in some measure, I thought, that you know, I was, I was a fearful kid, I was a nervous kid. I had been so even, even after my father had passed away when I was 12, which in many ways was even more traumatic because uh, he died very suddenly. But there was one particular feeling that went through my mind after my mother's death, which was quite unlike anything that I had experienced before. And the feeling really was that now, given that I had lost the two most important people in my life, there was this tremendous sort of vacuum that had opened up. And that vacuum wasn't just that important people had gone away. There was also this kind of, and I use this word advisedly, a kind of a terrible freedom that had come over me. And that was that now that two of the most important poles or the markers of my life had gone away and a certain sense of expectation had gone away, I was left free. And I was left free, not always in the way that existentialists talk about it. I, I felt like I could literally do anything with myself, including a great deal of self-harm. I felt like I could, uh, you know, take those kinds of measures which people often, you know, don't really come across in their darkest moments, that of, you know, killing oneself. I, I, was, I was suicidal in those moments. And I really felt that now actually I could kill myself because there was no one left there to mourn for me. You know, my parents had been the ones that had cared the most about me. Uh, they were the ones who had, you know, really in many ways defined what my life was supposed to be. And I felt with this great kind of, you know, you could think of it as a kind of a barrier. You could think of it as a kind of a restraint upon myself. That having lifted, it thrust me into a zone which I found terrifying. And I felt like there was something untrammeled about this freedom that was actually terrifying, that was, that was far more fearful, in fact, than anything that I had ever experienced before. And that's when I 
made the decision to go into psychotherapy and I spent five years in therapy and psychoanalysis in the years that followed. And, you know, I would say it was on and off. And I would say between 1993 and 2002, I spent five or six years in, in, uh, in therapy and analysis. And I often said things like, well, I feel adrift, I feel cut loose. And there's a tremendous sense of possibility at the same time, because I felt like I could actually do anything with my life. These, these constraints didn't exist anymore upon me, upon the way I had to live. But I found all of this terribly terrifying as well. And it's around that same time that I had started studying philosophy as well. And I had come into philosophy because I would say there was another kind of anxiety that had afflicted me, which I think is quite common to people, which is the kind of anxiety that strikes people when they enter into, I would say, deep relationships, when they enter into intense relationships with other people. Uh, I was at the time, you know, um, passing through or, um, you know, uh, in, in a way experiencing the most intense romantic relationship of my life, one that I felt that was very formative, but one that ironically also put me into a space of intense loss as well, because when the time for the relationship came to end, I experienced, you know, a kind of, you know, the most, uh, uh, I guess, the most pressing of decisions that people have to make. You have to make a choice. And when you make that choice, you realize that both of the choices that are available to you entail some kind of terrible loss, either the loss of the loved one with whom you're breaking up with, or the loss of this, or the loss of this freedom that you had to make your life in the way that you wanted it, independent of this person. And so I remember saying at that time, right at the age of 26, that I had, I had come face to face with certain bitter truths about this life. One, that I couldn't have everything that I wanted. Second, that no matter what choice I made, it entails some kind of loss. And thirdly, thanks to my mother's death, and it followed 14 years after my father's death, that this world was deeply unpredictable. It was deeply uncertain. And that in fact, every day in that, I, that I lived in my life, you know, it began like any other day, but I didn't quite know what was going to happen. And that's something I wrote in that article that whenever you read descriptions of disaster, they always, always begin with just what a normal day it was. It was a beautiful sunny, sunny day. I was backing my car out of the driveway when the phone rang and I got the news that this terrible thing happened. And so these three things, I think these terrible losses that I'd suffered, the sense of, the sense of this terrible freedom, which was mixed with loss and the realization that life was actually a series of decision points, each of which required you to step into the unknown, to reckon with the consequences of your decision, and to, as it were, deal with the uncertainty that actually could never be dispelled. Like there was no way of getting rid of a certain amount of ignorance and uncertainty that was built into the human condition. And I think these things, in the way that I started to relate to them when I read existentialist philosophers, I realized that I was experiencing something which was a very, very common human condition. In fact, uh, I don't think it's too far to say that it is the human condition. And I would say my life up till that time had been a certain kind of illusion if it hadn't been shattered by my father's death when I was 12. I think it certainly was by my mother's death. And I think I realized when I was in therapy that I might have, you know, I might have considered myself traumatized and therefore become anxious. But the more I spent time on the couch and the more I spent time talking to therapists and, uh, and my analysts, I realized that I'd always been an anxious kid. In fact, I'd always been anxious my entire life. 
And these feelings had always been present in me. It's just that I never paid that much attention to them. I just thought, you know, I'm like one of these, I'm just one of these uh, nervous kids. I'm, I'm one of these insecure kids. And I realized that actually I wasn't an exception. I was, I was just like everybody else. And the more people I talked to, I realized that this was an affliction that was far more common than we might have imagined. Uh, so yeah, that's some kind of, I think, genesis of these emotions that I'm talking about. And I think, and I think my pursuing philosophy at that time was very much an effort to find relief. I didn't go to philosophy because I was seeking to become an academic. I didn't go to philosophy because I thought I was going to write books that were going to be published by Oxford University Press. I went to philosophy because reading philosophy actually gave me relief. I realized that when I picked up a, picked up a philosophy book and read, for the period of time that I was reading that book, I was delivered from what I was feeling before I picked up the book. And I think that's why I decided to start studying philosophy because I thought, well, you know, years and years of being like this might actually be the ticket for me. So I came to philosophy seeking therapeutic relief. And I think that's, uh, that's one way of thinking about my relationship to philosophy and anxiety. That's awesome. And I think I could definitely relate to that as a kid who was just as anxious as you were. I remember I was so, to your point of sort of not understanding or not being able to sense the difference between, let's say, yourself and somebody else or kind of yourself as an anxious kid. I remember when I was a kid and I struggled with anxiety and depression. For me, that was normal. I actually didn't know until years later, probably until I was in college, that like depression and anxiety were actually a thing. So to me, in my mind, it was as though this is just a normal state of things. I was like, what well, kid isn't experiencing this state? And yep. interestingly enough, when I came to philosophy, it was very similar because for me, I was looking for the bigger sort of questions, you know, the, rather the bigger answers to the questions of life. And I remember when I started studying that in Plato and Aristotle and the beginning kind of the pre-Socratics, I was actually looking to the kind of looking to answer the question of what the hell is the meaning of life and what is it that I'm doing here and why is it that I'm so terrified of death all the time because as a kid like I felt like I was really afraid of the dark and I was afraid of going to sleep and I was afraid of literally dying in my sleep and so I was afraid of just like one day not waking up and I remember thinking like if somebody has to know these answers it has to be sort of these mystics and these religious kind of seers right who are trying obviously for centuries to answer these questions and was it kind of like that for you too Samir? I think, I think when I started studying philosophy and when I, the more I read, uh, the more I read, you know, and, and, and I, don't, I, I don't think it's just the existentialists. There are many philosophers and, you know, this is, you know, this is part and parcel of the philosophical tradition. And I'll sort of throw out one kind of, you know, uh, viewpoint of the relationship between philosophy and anxiety that I've been, you know, that I'm now swinging around to as I'm working on my book on anxiety, mm-hmm. which is that anxiety is almost indispensable to philosophy in the sense that the reason why philosophy often promises us or sometimes gives us relief from anxiety is because I think a many philosophers were anxious people themselves if not all philosophers I think philosophy itself is infected with a certain kind of anxiety I actually tend to think of the philosophical disposition as being an anxious one I think that I think that people that the tendency to ask questions without knowing what the answer is or could be, is also infected with a certain kind of anxiety. And so I actually have come to think that philosophy is not just going to provide us relief from anxiety, that doing philosophy reveals that we are anxious. And in fact, the asking of questions reveals our anxiety. And I think one of the deepest things I also realized on encountering philosophy was that, you know, even things like, for example, religious feeling or religious sentiments, they're also tinged with a terrible amount of anxiety about getting their faith right, about making sure that 
the kinds of principles you espouse or the kinds of principles you profess to believe in will actually have the effect on you that you that you think they will. And I th you know, I want to respond to one thing you said in the beginning about the the business of going to philosophy, looking for relief, and and like confronting these questions that you realize are being asked by everybody, is that it also, I think, made me, I think, quite empathetic towards my, my fellow human beings because I realized that all of us, you know, even the ones of us that are on the face of it, terribly confident, terribly accomplished, you know, that are, you know, that are beautiful, strong, rich, that are successful, that are possessed of, you know, tremendous amounts of public, I, I would say, you know, um, self-confidence, that these folks confess to the same anxieties as I did. You know, they wrote books in which they made their confessions. They sometimes revealed them in private conversations. So I think part of it was coming to realize that sort of, you know, that the universality of anxiety and then thinking of, thinking of philosophy as also being a kind of universal human practice that has been dedicated to answering these questions. Because I think all these ultimate questions that you are asking, you know, who am I? What is going to happen to me? Uh, you know, what the psychiatrist uh, Irving Yalom called the ultimate concerns of death, isolation, uh, meaning, responsibility. All of us grapple with these questions and all of us are concerned about what the correct answers are to these questions. And I think when we ask them, we are revealing a certain anxiety about the kinds of answers we think we might find. And I think that's what philosophers and those who read philosophy are actually engaged in doing. They're, they're trying to put themselves into, into confrontation with these ultimate concerns. And I think those concerns are always sort of lurking at the edges of our anxiety. And I think it's no matter what, you know, something quite as mundane as changing majors in college can reveal a deep fundamental anxiety. It takes only a few minutes talk to a young undergraduate and ask them, why do you want to change your major from biology to French? And you know, you think this is a kind of a mundane logistical matter. And five questions later, you find yourself wading in the waters of this person's deep anxiety about what they're good at, how they can possibly realize their life, and how they can possibly come to understand what kind of person they are, because they're worried about what they're good at and worried about how they can find meaning in life, worried about how they can find satisfaction in their work. And these things are just the, I think, the surface phenomena of far deeper anxieties about how to live their lives and who they really are and how they can best, quote unquote, find themselves, so to speak. And I think that anxiety is rooted in this sort of urgent need for certainty. So for me, I don't know, Samir, if you've kind of, uh, if you've seen something along these lines, but I feel as though for the most part, when we talk about kind of academics and just intellectuals broadly, what we're seeing is that the sort of the smarter the person is in the sense of the more he or she knows, the more they actually, the more anxious they feel about how little they know. So you kind of see these deep sense of anxiety as the foundation to partly, obviously, there's obviously also the desire for knowledge, but partly sort of that fuel that fuels them is the fear that they don't know enough or that they're never going to know enough and it kind of drives them to go further so i think that when we're talking about sort of intellect as kind of other skills as well obviously too but the idea is when we're talking about perfecting something that perfection or that desire to grow or that desire to be better is always rooted in some sort of fear of failure or the fear of being sort of exposed as a fraud or even the fear just in general of being a fraud i think a lot of us don't want that and then obviously we're also talking about you know sort of being and feeling as though you have something called self-efficacy where you kind of have this need to 
master something because if you don't, obviously you'll again, feel the fear of being exposed and of being sort of perceived as incompetent. And a lot of what we do is actually driven by fear, right? Sort of on the kind of on the other side, when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about sort of like eliminating anxiety and we're talking about medications, right? Which you talk about in your article. And we're talking about sort of different sort of, um, my point is not to devalue this, but even like mindfulness retreats or these different methods that we're talking about to use in terms of alleviating anxiety. But what we should actually be, let me, okay, I don't want to be too black and white about it, about this mindfulness retreats are okay. But what I think what we should also do is we should listen to our anxiety because a lot of times that thing that sort of fuels us is that thing that actually scares us. And if instead of kind of avoiding it, we at least to some extent shifted our attention to it, what we could see is that with it, we can accomplish great things. Yeah, you know, I think uh, the business about that, you know, I think that if I've got you correctly, the business about not wanting to get rid of our anxiety, there's a, there's a, there's a common thread that often runs through is that helping someone with their anxiety means helping them overcome, conquer, get rid of, eradicate, uh, and all these terms where anxiety is an undesirable thing, which has to be, as it were, eliminated from our psyche. I think that if somebody was to, and this is a, this is a, you know, this is a conclusion that I've come to. Suppose somebody was to ask us the question, what is the basic human affect, right? That is, if I am a human being and I find myself in this world, my eyes pop open and I'm in this world, right? Here I am. And somebody asked me at that moment, when you confront this new thing, what do you feel? What's the basic human fact? What's the basic human affect? Clearly, I'm experiencing my senses, right? I'm seeing things, I'm smelling, I am, I'm sensing stuff on my skin. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of sensory package, right? That makes up my basic consciousness. But I want to push further. What's the basic emotion that you feel at the time? What's the basic emotional affect that you experience? My answer is that the basic emotional affect that we experience is anxiety. Because that is, because to, you know, to, when my eyes pop open, the first question I ask is, what is this? Where am I? Who am I? And what am I supposed to make of all of this, right? Those three or four questions are the start of human thought. They're the start of human inquiry. They're the start of us philosophizing. And notice to all those questions, we don't know the answer. And the more we come to learn about ourselves and what our basic human limitations are, we come to realize that we cannot have certain answers to these questions that we ask. And moreover, as I keep on asking questions, all I'm going to do is as it were, push back the darkness or the unknown a little bit further, but I will also take a step closer towards it. Because that's one thing that happens always. And that, you know, that line you said about the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. My my, my house is full of books. I have rooms and shelves full of books like your typical academic, many of them unread, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, all of this actually fills me with a terrible kind of anxiety as well because I don't know enough. Time is running out. These questions that I've been asking for, you know, decades and decades, I only have provisional answers to them. I might have settled on certain answers that work for me for certain times and periods, but I'm not sure whether they're the whether they're the right answers to the questions I asked. Mm -hmm. Every venture that I take on in this world is tinged with the probability of failure. Every, every step that I take forward into the unknown tells me something about myself, but it also tells me how much more I need to find out, right? So these dispositions, I think are part and parcels of our, ourselves. 
And I've actually now come to think of anxiety as a bit of a messenger from myself to myself. It's a kind of an internal, it's a kind of an internal communication system. It's part of my soul, my mind, my psyche, whatever you want to call it, myself, informing other parts of me, uh, letting me know what it is that I am, that I might be scared about, I might be fearful of. And I, and I tend to think that if we pay attention to anxiety, which is formless, I could turn it into just regular fear. Because, you know, the, the distinction I like to make is anxiety is when you don't know what you're scared about and fear is when you have an object of fear. So I think the first step for us to do is to pay attention to your anxiety. And when you pay attention to your anxiety, you might be able to turn it into fear because you can notice what it is that you're scared about. So for example, it is quite clear to me that I am, you know, I am anxious all day and in a certain low grade level, if I was to pay attention to it, obviously about things like death, right? I, you know, those are, you know, it's kind of lurking at the corner of my mind. I don't know when and how I'm going to die. Um, I'm also concerned about whether I'm, whether I'm living my life in the right way, uh, whether I'm making the most of it, whether I'm really engaged in the right way to live or not. I'm also worried about, for example, my wife and daughter. I, I worry about them terribly. I worry that you know, bad things might happen to them. But notice that in noticing these factors about myself, I'm learning a great deal about myself. I'm learning, for instance, that I am concerned, that I am responsible for my work, that I, have a, that I have a certain sense of pride in the, in the writing that I do, that I have certain high standards for myself, that I have a certain measure of intellectual honesty that I want to abide by, and that if I don't abide by that, by that honesty, then I feel I'm living my life incorrectly. Uh, the fact that I care so much about my wife and daughter is deeply revealing to me. It tells me something about the values. It tells me on what basis I will make certain decisions down the line. Uh, you know, the, the, the tremendous place that my daughter occupies in my life is, is, is a clear indicator of a certain table of values that I have. So in some sense, if you think of anxiety as a kind of a, kind of a broadcasting system within you, it's like sending off these signals. And if you just want to shut them down, right, you're actually, I think, losing an opportunity to learn something about yourself. I think we are anxious. We are all anxious. You know, that, that, that great line of Tolstoy is about, you know, Every happy family is, is, is alike in the same way, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own distinctive way. Mm -hmm. And I like to think, you know, we're all anxious, but we're all anxious in our own distinctive ways. And one of the things that mindfulness can do is that it can force you to pay attention to your anxieties. It, you know, it's not just something formless anymore. Uh, therapy can help you do that. Reading can help you do that. Writing can help you do that. So I think anxiety is a way, is an, is an invitation step into this space and you will be scared, but then we always are scared. So why not actually, you know, face up to the fear and come to realize that if you were to actually step forth into this, you might actually receive a great deal of, shall we say, useful information from yourself about who you are, what's valuable to you and how you want to live your life. Um, you know, I think of certain struggles that I've had with fears over the years and uh, many of them, you know, I think, I think uh, one of the most deeply significant ones that I, I don't think I've mastered yet, but that I'm working on, and this might sound trivial to some people, is, you know, the fear of heights, mm -hmm. right? Uh, now, this is a real fear. This is, this is not anxiety. This is a real fear. But yet it is underwritten by certain anxieties. And I think by getting into the spaces where I expose myself to the fear of heights, because now I've become a climber, 
Um, so now I climbed and I, and, I, and, I, and I placed myself in all these situations. And I find it's actually true that if you place yourself in a situation where you're scared of something, guess what? Uh, it actually gets better. I now find myself in places where I think five years ago, if I had seen a video of someone doing that, I would have had, an, I would have had a nausea attack. <laughs> and now I find myself on these precipices and ledges looking down at, you know, this creek flowing hundreds of feet below me. And I'm, and I'm stunned, like what has happened to me? I've changed. And a large part of that is because I took the step forward into that fear. I, I often tell my students, I said, I'm still as scared as I ever used to be of heights. The difference is back then, I used to be scared of heights and not climb. Now I'm scared of heights and I climb. So I get to actually experience things and, and find out something about myself that I wouldn't have had I not stepped into that zone of fear and, and anxiety and uncertainty, of course. Yeah, it must give you incredible confidence in other areas of your life where you may experience fear because by being able to confront that fear of heights, you've taught yourself that you can confront your fear of almost anything and ease your way into it and face it. That's fascinating, yeah. actually. I, you know, I, I hesitate to use this word glibly, but I do genuinely think uh, something like this has been transformative for, my, for me. I really think that, um, and, you know, including taking certain decisions like having a child as well. Um, but I think it, it's, it's, it's exactly right. It does give me that sense that having, con not, not conquered, I, 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 I don't want to use that word, having taken the step forward to go ahead and experience it, it is possible for me to go into other spaces where I will also experience this anxiety and have some faith that I might be able to ride it through and find myself in a new space on the other side, right? Which is something that I might not have had the confidence to have done, you know, before I took up this venture. Right. And sort of in terms of philosophy and even psychology, what are some of the motivators that you use? Like some of sort of the philosophical ideas or tools that you've come across that you found to be helpful to be able to lean into the fear? Um, I would say, you know, obviously I was inspired very much by the existentialists, uh, you know, not just, uh, you know, the, the existentialist philosophers, but also, you know, uh, folks, I think, you know, even novelists who have, um, and I think many different species of literature. So I would say within the philosophical tradition, I would say existentialism, but I think also a very a, a philosophical tradition that has had a very powerful influence on in me is also uh, pragmatism, mm -hmm. which is thinking about philosophy or philosophies as tools that help us live lives, that help us accomplish certain tasks, and that are, as it were, not these rigid, inflexible dogmas that have to be adhered to, but that are these flexible changes or approaches that we adopt to the problematics that we find uh, ourselves confronting at any given moments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, existentialism, I think it made me realize certain universal aspects of the human condition. It, I think it put me into touch with uh, a certain kind of sympathy and empathy that I felt with fellow human beings. And I think Pragmatism was terribly, or I think, you know, uh, tremendously liberating, not, not terribly liberating, tremendously liberating in my realizing that, in fact, philosophical doctrines and theories are not, you know, these revelations from on high that I have to be rigidly wedded to, that at any given time, what I am, what I am doing is working with a set of tools that help me make the best sense of whatever 
situation I find myself in at, at any given moment. So, you know, so sometimes people will ask me, who's your favorite philosopher or what kind of philosophy do you do? I say my answer to that is that I'm a philosophical magpie. I build my philosophical nest with, with you know, bits and pieces taken from everywhere. I feel, I feel perfectly comfortable straddling different sorts of traditions, the Western, the, you know, uh, the Eastern. I, I will take bits from existentialism, from pragmatism, from 20th century analytic philosophy, if I have to, from Buddhism, uh, uh, from literature, from poetry. I tend to find philosophy in places where people sometimes don't find philosophy. I, I find philosophy in plays and poems and novels and movies. Uh, so for me, philosophy is a far more ec eclectic enterprise. It, it really means a kind of a, an open, investigative, flexible approach. One that is geared not towards the solving of problems, but towards, as it were, taking on problems as they confront me in my unique particular lived experience. And, you know, my uniqueness is all mine and I shouldn't expect ready-made solutions that I work for other people to work for me as well. So if I find myself make, making adjustments to my, to my orientation or to my thought, well, you know, that's as it were demanded by my, by my life. And I think that's why paying attention to our particular anxiety, our particular species of anxiety, the things that, you know, as it were, make us the most fearful. That is, I think, one of the most necessary and vital tasks that we can take on as, uh, you know, as concerned and, and I would say curious uh, human beings. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say to be curious is to be anxious. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, and that reminds me of a famous story of William James, who obviously struggled with depression for God knows what period, but the idea was when he accepted the doctrine of free will, it was essentially life-changing, right? So whether or not free will exists, I mean, the idea is to some extent it does, right? Obviously, we know that, you know, sort of I pick up a can or I pick up a bottle, it's through my own volition. So whether it's compatible with determinism, I would say the answer is likely. But the point is that what the pragmatists were looking for was not so much universal truth, but they were looking for helpful truths that were we're obviously partial when we look at the bigger picture. And what I love about philosophy is in their perspective, the idea was, well, let's not, let's not think of philosophy as a way of solving these universal sort of questions, right? But let's think of it more in terms of leading the good life. So I think when it comes to psychologists, we sort of gear ourselves more toward, you know, kind of stoic and pragmatic philosophy, just for the simple fact that these ideas are so helpful for our everyday lives. And so Samir, is that something that you find in philosophical counseling too? Yeah, you know, thanks for asking me about that. I uh, I find that in philosophical counseling, the you know the approach is actually quite uh, I would say straightforward in the sense that when you look at philosophical practice, when you look at the way that we conduct philosophy, and when you look at you know, especially in the Western tradition, when you when you think of someone like Socrates, you know, who's engaging in these Socratic dialogues with folks and exposing their ignorance, and you know, very often ways that are ironic and you know often make you know, his interlocutor is quite uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. What he is doing in some sense, and this is very often what happens in a classroom when you are talking with students or what happens in a psychologist clinic, is that as you talk to the person that who is your interlocutor and by asking them a series of questions or by them talking to you, they are revealing something about what they believe. They're revealing something about their justifications for their beliefs and they are very often revealing the connections between those beliefs. So I think of philosophical counseling as me engaging in a conversation with someone and helping them discover 
what their underlying philosophy of life is, because whether you know it or not, you have been living your life according to this philosophy. The decisions you make, the relationships you enter into, the career that you've taken on, the things that you find valuable, they are revelatory of certain beliefs that you hold, the strengths that you assign to those beliefs, the justifications for them. So in a certain sense, the, this when exposed helps you understand why is, it that you hope, why is it that you have certain kinds of emotional responses? Because if you believe certain claims, then you have certain kinds of emotional responses. For example, if I think taxation is unfair, uh, then the government raising taxes tomorrow is going to make me angry. If I think raising taxes is my contribution to the common wheel, then the government talking about a new tax that is supposed to help pay for the cost of the pandemic is, is going to result in my saying, you know, that's a good thing because I live in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a society where everybody has to contribute to the common good. And guess what? You know, because I live in this society, I should make my contribution. My emotional effect or my emotional response to that is going to be quite different. And I think it's especially significant when we think that the best treatments for mental illness today, for anxiety and depression, these are not biological, they're not behavioral, they're not pharma, pharmacological, they tend to be cognitive. That is what psychologists and counselors are trying to do is to help people understand why they believe certain things and why they interpret certain things in the way that they do. This event has happened. What does it mean to you, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, Freud used to often say that, uh, it's not the mere occurrence of some event that is of significance. It is the meaning that we attach to the, to the event that is of significance, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays in my home in Colorado, when I come out and see the sunset, it means something or, or the sunrise, it means something very different to me when I was in New York, right? There's a, there's a, there's a different placement. I have this urge to run out and go get my daughter, right? To, you know, to see the sunrise at the sunset. It has a different emotional affect for me so that, you know, that line that you quoted for me early on about something, uh, anxiety is the coloration that lends, um, you know, that lends, uh, that lends sufferers a kind of a distinctive hue. Yeah. I think we wear these lenses, we wear our philosophies lenses, and they are the ones as we scan and scout the world around us, they are the ones that are assigning meaning to the events around us. Mm -hmm. So when I'm driving down the street and I see an old man hobbling across the crossing with no one helping him, you know, someone might say, well, that's, an, that's just an old man crossing a street. From my particular orientation, I sometimes feel, fuck, that could be me. Or I think, man, our society is so heartless. There's this old man crossing the road and no one's offered to help him. It, it could be something that could fill me with anxiety. It could be something that could fill me with rage. It could be something that could fill me with a tremendous sorrow, right? So helping people understand why they believe the things that they do, what they believe, and how they interpret events. I think that's my task as a philosophical counselor. And the tools that I have are, you know, the same tools that I've always used, which is, which is the deployment of philosophical doctrines, you know, within me and bringing them into this conversation with the people that I converse with, but not, of the, not in the sense of imposing a particular way of thinking or philosophizing upon them, but more along the lines of helping them understand how they are actually philosophizing and helping that philosophizing work for them. So I don't think I, it's philosophical counseling is meant as a kind of a rectification, but rather as a kind of, rather as a kind of intervention that says, I can help you in some sense, figure out what it is that is bothering you and think about how 
how these how these views and these interpretations that you bring to these encounters to the world can be made to work for you as well. Right. And it's so brilliant because it also reminds me of cognitive priming, where we essentially interpret data sort of even kind of like psychologically, not just cognitively. I mean, in terms of our perceptions in a way that we kind of already believe. So it's like yes. the idea is like, you know, the kind of famous example given is if you're kind of walking in a dark room and you see sort of a shadowy like figure and you believe in ghosts, your brain is going to sort of prime, be primed to, yeah, to interpret it as a ghost. And we, often do, right, and we often do that with interpretations. And the interesting thing was we had a conversation with somebody about this earlier is that unfortunately with the way cognitive dissonance works is if obviously you're presented with counter information to something you strongly believe chances are you're either going to sort of ignore it you're going to deny it or you're going to sort of explain it in such a way where it fits your beliefs so i wonder samir when you're philosophical counseling do you experience that sometimes where sort of you're sort of presenting pieces of evidence to somebody and then there's some part of them that's just resisting it yeah you know i uh the when you brought up the phrase cognitive priming, I was struck by something that I often say in my philosophy classes, which is uh, often in 20th century um, analytic philosophy, you know, is a kind of um, sometimes considered a kind of a, you know, there, there's a slogan that might underwrite the way that we have turned a certain popular wisdom on its head. You know, we're used to saying uh, seeing is believing, right? Mm -hmm. And I would instead say that believing is seeing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we see based those things that we are capable of seeing based upon our beliefs. We have certain cognitive frameworks. We have certain frameworks of interpretation and they help us understand and they help us view what we are seeing in a particular light. So when I look at the world, I'm not just seeing these objects. I am seeing my furniture. I'm seeing my study. I'm seeing my books. And these are invested with a tremendous personal significance for me. Someone who walks into this room is seeing something very different. They are, they are not, you know, someone might say, well, they're looking at the same books that you are. I mean, it's the same text. It's the same colors. I said, nope, they're not looking at the same thing. And then people say, what do you mean they're not looking at the same thing? I said, but, and I always say, because by thing, I mean, not just the object or it's, you know, or what I might call it's sort of sensory impact on me. I also mean the layers of meaning that are draped over that thing. And so this world that we are walking through, this world is not coming to me naked and unmediated, and then I'm making sense of it. The world that I'm seeing is already covered with layers and layers of meaning. You know, uh, John Dewey once said, he said, thought is intrinsic to perception. There is no naked perception. I'm not seeing the world unfiltered in any way. There are many, many filters over my eyes many, many cognitive filters, many affective filters, many psychological filters. And my task as a counselor is to help my client or, you know, my, my you know, if you want to call them patient or client, help them understand what filters is it that they are working with, how those filters often work for them, but those same filters don't work for them in other contexts. I think one very good example is anger. Mm -hmm. uh, I work with someone that had anger problems and, you know, I think one of the very insightful conversations we had was my, my client was, you know, I, I think I said something to him like this anger that we talk about, it's, it's a certain kind of drive or energy that's being expressed in one way, but it's the same thing that works for you in your life in all these other domains. It's the same emotion. It's in this particular form. It's found an outlet that is destructive for you, but yet 
my task is not there to come and neuter your anger and to say, well, you should completely, you know, become this passionless, affectless, sort of, you know, neutered person who has no emotional responses. I, I said, you know, you are an angry person and that anger is manifest in your tremendous drive and energy in the way you take care of your family, the way you've been able to handle these difficulties of yours, maybe even this nervous restlessness that you display in your, in your conversation with me. My task is not to get rid of all of this for you. This thing is working for you in all these other parts of your life. My task is to help you understand why it is in these particular domains, certain beliefs that you're bringing to it is resulting in this drive or this energy being expressed in this almost completely self-destructive fashion. Mm. So, you know, to return to your original point, I would say, yes, it's the, it's the blend of thought and emotion or rationality and emotion or of, or of, or of affect and, and cognition that I think we are trying to, as it were, understand and help us understand what it is that we are bringing to these daily encounters with people, with places, with events, and of course, with these very charged emotional encounters that we often have with other people. Right. And so, and Alan, you have some really great ideas on the ego, something that we talked about on the show before about how kind of the ego kind of intrudes on our interpretations and obviously causes misinterpretation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, yeah, of course. Uh, so in terms of how we identify with certain uh, beliefs or um, objects or uh, politically uh, when these beliefs are disrupted or you hear something counter to those beliefs usually find a way to justify your own mm -hmm. or not to listen to the other person's perspective you tend yeah. to defend your beliefs to the death yeah yeah um, what i find fascinating about um you revealing a person's cognitive frameworks to them uh what it does is it gives someone a meta level awareness yes to what it is that they're feeling or how they think about a certain situation yes many people before even having that meta level awareness, they're just stuck in the automaticity of things. They just kind of go with what they're feeling automatically. They may not necessarily think about how they're thinking yes. uh, or how their decisions uh, impact themselves or others. Yes. So even just doing that gives someone the ability to self-author themselves, to be more self-sovereign, to not, yeah. to not, uh, be conditioned by society or oh, sorry you still would be but to be less conditioned by yeah. society by by your uh, family by uh, by your media, impulses by your impulses mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, yeah I, you know uh thanks for saying all that because one of the ways in which i introduce philosophy often to my students and you know many of my students are you know beyond the philosophy majors and sometimes even the philosophy majors they might be thinking about, you know, why are we studying philosophy? What's the use of philosophy? I've always been told that philosophy is useless. And so I do emphasize these two aspects because I think they have tremendous personal and political significance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for example, one of the things I often say is by the end of the semester, hopefully I will have taught you how to switch on your bullshit detectors, mm -hmm. right? Um, I also tell them that hopefully by the end of the semester, you will perhaps understand why is it that you react during the day, getting angry at certain things, irritated by certain things, finding certain things funny, or you know, finding certain things beyond your comprehension. And that word that you used about meta-level awareness, I think that's a good way to think about it. I am trying to help them understand why is it 
that they react the way that they do because that tells them something about themselves. And I think this has political significance because after all, we are conditioned to use another word of yours. And here's another uh, word I want to use. We have been programmed. Uh, we are definitely programmed to speak a certain language, right? Uh, we are definitely programmed by our parents and by our society to have certain kinds of emotional responses. Uh, we identify strongly with our parents, with our society and our culture immediately around us. These are as it were implanting certain beliefs in us unconsciously or consciously as we go along. And the people that we have become by the time that we are adolescents or teenagers, it bears a very strong impress of this early upbringing. But that's not something that we've been consciously processing as a kind of programming. Instead, it's just kind of part and parcel of, of who we are. And so by the time that we encounter at adult life and when we are thrust into the space of having to make these very deeply, uh, deeply, I would say momentous existential decisions, we find ourselves in the positions of being people who are, who are reacting in all these ways whose roots are completely hidden to us because they are hidden. And, you know, the, whatever you might say about the psychoanalytic sort of genealogical method, there is something about going back to find out in this kind of, you know, in this kind of genetic method as to what's the, what's the path that brought me here. But of course, that path is imperfectly remembered. And very often that path has been filled in by all these gaps and suggestions as people telling me how I was born and how I was brought up. So I've had lots of stories told to me about my life. There are many stories that I've told myself about my life. And of course, one thing that people know about therapy is that very often when we go into therapy, we are entering this creative space where along with our therapist, we are sitting down to write a new script or a new narrative for our lives. And very often when we get in there, we tell a story. And one of the best things a therapist can do is, you know, the story you've told me about your life. Is there another way to read this book that you are telling us? And the, you know, the client might say, yeah, let's think about it. And, you know, it could be something quite as simple as writing a different ending for the story or writing, you know, these remembering different things, assigning different levels of importance to these events that you've had in your life. And that, you know, that word that you used, uh, self-authorship, mm -hmm. I think that's a very powerful word. I think very often, you know, there's a certain kind of worry that, you know, does that mean that anything goes in therapy? Does that mean I can make anything of myself? No, but I do think that if I'm able to step back from myself and look at who I am and look at how I became who I am, I might have a certain sense of, well, these are the parts that need a certain amount of receding into the background. These are the parts that need a certain amount of foregrounding. And you know, to, you know, to, um, to invoke one of my favorite philosophers, Nietzsche, we can become artists of our lives. We can become artists of ourselves. And you know, maybe this is a kind of a bourgeois notion in the sense that, well, we don't have you know, this, this complete freedom to remake ourselves in whatever we want. But at least now I have some sense of what this work of art is that I'm working with, what its possibilities are, what its potential is, and what its constraints are. Mm. You know, uh, not just in terms of having this tremendous untrammeled freedom, but also what are the various constraints that I'm going to be working in. For example, if I've had the same problem my entire life for the past 45 years, I would do better to think about making that weakness work for me or finding some measure of acceptance for that. For example, I have come to accept that at this age of my life, that I am the kind of person who makes very ambitious plans, but almost never follows through with them completely. 
<laughs> well, I could think of that as a terrible crushing burden and become depressed about the fact and abuse myself and say, you know, you're, you're someone who never gets anything done. Or I could say, you know, I'm at least someone who tries out lots of different things and finds himself in all these different places. And that has made me richer in all these ways. So I think a large part of it is realizing that there are these components to myself and one part of the world around me might be telling me that these are weaknesses, but maybe they aren't weaknesses. Maybe they're only weaknesses for a particular political or economic structure. If I'm the kind of guy who likes to wake up late in the morning, you know, maybe I'm the kind of guy who's never going to hold down a nine to five job, but maybe nine to five jobs aren't the only kinds of jobs that are out there. And maybe there's space in this world for people who wake up late as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might, these, these weaknesses of mine, guess what? In, in, in some social and political dimension, these might be the weaknesses that society has told me I have. Right. And maybe one of the reasons why society wants me to medicate myself is because it wants me to file all my unique and distinctive edges down to a bluntness and to make myself like everybody else. And why should I do that? Right? So yeah. I want to understand who I am in my intense, flawed particularity and to make those flaws work for me because guess what? My flaws are part of who I am. My weaknesses, my, my, my sort of terrible failures, they're all part of me. I, I want to take them all on and understand how they work for me in some sense. That's beautiful. And that actually reminds me, we had uh, Scott Barry Kaufman on, who's an ex, well, not an ex, he's actually a humanistic, humanistic yeah, yeah, humanistic psychologist who's sort of in the vein of Abraham Maslow. And um, he's sort of, um, how can I, so he talks about sort of transcendence and self-actualization. Self so the pinnacle of his work is essentially his book called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. And so Scott actually argues that mental health is the equivalent of what he calls transcending dichotomies. And so for us, it's very, yeah, so for us, it's very easy to put the world in black and white terms, where here are my weaknesses and here are my strengths. Um, here's why this person's a bad person and that person's a good person. And so the way Scott would conceptualize it is that when we think of transcending dichotomies, we actually see the black and the white within each facet of ourselves and of other people. And yeah. I like that you bring that up because what's so cool about that is that I think that within every weakness, right? Maybe not in every weakness, I don't know how sure this is, so I don't want to generalize, but in a lot of weaknesses that you can see so much strength and even vice versa in potential strengths, right? You could see a lot of weakness where we talk about like, let's say narcissism and we see somebody. So with my clients, sometimes I deal with the, um, let's say the notion that, oh, well, I have to appear confident. And so a client will come in and they'll say, well, you know, here are these people who are really confident and they're extroverted and people really love them. And I'm not that person, right? So I'm introverted and I don't like that. I want to be this other person. I want to be the opposite. And so what we focus on is like when we talk about pure extroversion and to the extent that it exists, obviously. But when we talk about the people who are highly extroverted, and the people who are sort of highly confident and outgoing and sort of, you know, kind of brash and whatnot, we actually start to focus on the downside of that. Because then the question is, is that, okay, just because a person is confident, does that actually necessarily mean they're right? And sometimes is it possible that the person who's unsure and the person who kind of stutters and stammers and they kind of barely get their words out, that they're actually the one who's right, as opposed to the person who's so sure, right? And we obviously can look at politics and look at somebody like kind of George, Joe, Joe Biden, who can sometimes barely get a word out. And then we, you know, 
compare him to Donald Trump, who's obviously quite self-assured. And so the idea is when we're talking about strengths and weaknesses, although it's very easy to look at something as one rather than the other, it's like behind the curtain, right? In some sort of, um, maybe in some deeper way or like akin to the unconscious, we kind of see a back door that actually lets us into the deeper path or the deeper pattern of that particular trait. So what's so interesting about mental health is these sort of aspects that we see of ourselves and we're so clear, not so clear, we're um, so, um, so can, what's, oh, what's the word? Uh, we're so sort of, uh, we have this tendency to label them and to say that this is good and this is bad and sort of this is what I have to be better at and this is what's something I want to sort of alleviate like anxiety and this is something I want to get rid of. When we actually look at the other side of it, we're like, holy shit. So like if somebody is a perfectionist, right? And they're like, oh, well, I don't want to feel so much anxiety or I want to feel good about myself, right? And I'm so tired of being this way. But then let's look at the bright side of that. Look at the fact that because of your perfectionism and because of this intense fear of failure that you've had, you've literally accomplished way more people than or way more things than somebody else at your age might have had. And so the idea is when we talk about sort of dichotomies, what we're looking for is sort of the black and the white of these different facets of ourselves. And existentially speaking, what you see is that the sort of wholeness seems to be the indicator of mental health rather than here's this person who is good and like this is the sort of the, the type of human being I want to be and here's kind of everybody else and these are the type of people we want to sort of stay away from you know personality wise in terms yeah. of our own selves right but the idea is that you kind of see a wholeness when you look at the bigger picture yeah um I'm I'm, I'm just gonna uh you know when you started talking about transcending dichotomies something went through me and I made this quick note to myself last semester I taught uh Dostoevsky's uh, Notes on the House of the Dead mm -hmm. to my class in Philosophical Issues and Literature. And as we went through the class, you know, or as we went through the text, uh, one of the things that Dostoevsky does in that book is he keeps on providing these intensely detailed character sketches of his fellow prisoners. And so I asked my class, I said, why do you think he's so interested in presenting all these character sketches of all these prisoners? And we had an interesting discussion about that. And two very interesting points came up. First of all, the prison is supposed to be where outcasts, criminals, the dregs of society go, right? So the first thing that Dostoevsky is telling us, these are the outcasts of our society. And guess what? They're human beings. And not only are they human beings, they are not defined by their crimes. There is a great deal more to them, right? Secondly, when you notice this great deal more to them, you notice that human personality is multifaceted, that it is intensely diverse, and that, in fact, this was a, you know, this is an obsession of Dostoevsky, which he even shows in Notes from Underground, that simple reductive formula will not work for describing man. That when you take a theory and a formula, when you take a social scientific formula and you apply it to people, actual living individuals, something always gets left out. The point of all those character sketches is not to just engage in some kind of novelistic enterprise. The point is to show us that human beings are diverse, that we are different, that formulas don't fit us, and that in fact, no formulas will fit us. And that the, one of the most terrible mistakes we can try and do is to come up with a theory that is supposed to work for all human beings. It cannot, it should not. And if it does, we should be deeply suspicious of it. There's something terribly, terribly, I would say limiting about totalizing philosophies that would tell us how to live our lives and what the right kind of way to live our life is. And I think that's what Dostoevsky is doing. He's showing that even in a prison, I want you to think about what is it that we have defined as normal? What is it that we have defined as abnormal? I always ask my students, I said, can you guys give me a list of mental illnesses through the years, which we have found out years later that weren't mental illnesses? People are like, yeah, 
you know, hysteria, for instance, you know, the women's hysteria, being gay was a mental illness. Now in the 21st century, people think that trans people are mentally ill, right? So I said at any given point, a society has classified a huge bunch of people as mentally ill. It has classified a huge bunch of people as perverts, as outcasts, as abnormal. Now I turn to the normal people. And it turns out, and this is where the political significance of this comes in, that the normal people are simply those people that are most in line with the dominant ideology that happens to make the most powerful class even more powerful. So I'm saying this is a kind of a racket. All our particularities, all our uniquenesses are being filed away, are being sought to get rid of, all in the urge to fit us into these rigidly defined molds, right? With no respect for our for this for this for this individuality that I bring to these situations, and I think that's the I think that's one of the most I think you know if I had a responsibility as a counselor, it is to help people realize they are particular, they're individual, they are unique, and that these things that these things that they might be considering weaknesses might actually be things that are simply out of sync with certain dominant and established modes of thought. And what I want for them to find is a place for themselves within this world with those weaknesses and warts and all. Some of them are clearly not working for you, but very often they might not be working for you precisely because it is being drummed into your head that you are out of step, that you are a freak, and that here's a few pills that you need or here is a different way that you need to start to think or here is a different job that you need to be doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, think I, I, I see this with my college students. You know, this is a terrible thing that I've noticed amongst undergraduates, amongst school students. You know, they are they feel they're going forward into this world. They feel they're not making the right decisions. They feel they want to live their lives in a particular way. But the outside society wants them to live in a particular way because it says that living this way is actually being free. And so they are compelled to be free, to take on only certain kinds of professions to study only certain kinds of subjects. Well, what kind of freedom is this? There's something is wrong with this picture. And I think, you know, I think this, you know, for example, the recent interest in psychedelics in our society where, you know, I think in the last, I don't know how many years this has been going on. It's like almost like psychedelics has become the new pain, mainstream drug or the name mainstream medicine almost. Mm -hmm. I think this says something about how people want some other way of reconceptualizing their life. And, 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 and I use that word advisedly. They have been sold a certain package. And I think people sense deep down inside that there is something wrong with this package that we have been sold. And this, ex this expresses itself in, you know, drug and alcohol abuse rates are at an all-time high. Suicide rates are at an all-time high, right? Anxiety is, you know, anxiety, you know, let, let's, let's, let's set aside, as, let, let's bracket anxiety. What we might call pathologies are... I think the result of society trying to impose certain ways of thinking and living upon people and people conforming and yet realizing that there is something wrong even as they do so. Yeah. 
And so just the one of the final questions is going to be on kind of on the topic of transcending dichotomies. First, I want to read a quote for Samir, uh, from Samir, and then I want to ask the question. Mm. So Samir, you wrote, my parents' deaths taught me that this world was quicksand, built on quicksand. That talk of certainty was laughable, that all things came to be and passed away, that God did not exist, that there were no truths more vital than love, that all we wanted was companionship and spiritual solace. So what's so awesome about that is what, from uh, what I took away from the article, when we're talking about transcending dichotomies, what we're also saying or implicitly saying is that when people think about the meaningless, meaninglessness or the inherent meaninglessness of the universe, we think, oh my God, here's this terrible thing, right? How, how could it be any worse? Like finding out that the universe has no objective meaning has to be the most devastating thing that anyone can experience. But what I loved was that even though you acknowledge that, right, there's definitely a sullenness and a sadness there. There's also a vital freedom to it. And so my question for you, Samir, is going to essentially be an in accepting that part of life, that inherent sort of meaninglessness. How has it helped you free yourself from some of your anxiety or how has it helped you sort of cope or mitigate your anxiety regarding kind of, um, let's say what you wanted or what you sort of thought that you were supposed to expect for your future? Thanks. Uh, and once again, thanks for quoting that. Uh, I do believe in that quite sincerely. And I think the way you put it is interesting. You can experience this realization that the universe is, you know, so to speak, without some predetermined or some ultimate or some you know, so-called truth or cosmic meaning, you can experience it as a tremendous fear. Uh, you can experience it as you know, something that uh, the existentialists often call this kind of giddying, terrifying, exhilarating freedom. You can also experience it, I think, in the way that I'm experiencing it now as giving me a certain kind of quiet peace that, you know, this universe was and is and will be meaningless. It will endure with or without me. Uh, you know, there was an infinite span of, you know, darkness before I came into the scene and there will be an infinite span after I've gone. In this span that I've been given, I, I, I can carve out a little corner, a little space for myself. I can decorate it with the little pieces of my life the little artworks, you know, the things that I did, the books that I wrote, the friends that I made. These are all little works of art that sort of decorate my life mm -hmm. uh, with, with love, which I think is the most beautiful thing that we can experience because we come into contact with another person like ourselves. We experience in our most intense moments of vulnerability with, with the ones that we love, if we are lucky enough, uh, that same you know, that same fear, that same anxiety when they, when they share it with us. You know, my wife has often consoled me many times in my moments of anxiety. And I'll be quite honest with you. I'm the kind of person who at times, you know, uh, I will break down and cry. I have, I have woken up in the mornings just almost gibbering with fear, you know, not sure of whether I'm making certain right decisions. And, you know, she has, she has comfor comforted me, you know, like a mother might comfort her child. And I think that's a, those are some of the most beautiful moments I've experienced. And so I often think that, you know, this, this wasn't meant to be meaningful. This wasn't meant to have a deep meaning to it, but it's, but it's also gives me a quiet peace that these decisions that I made, you know, I made them knowing as much as I did, as much as I could. I'm a human being. I'm flawed. I have made many mistakes. I will continue to make mistakes. I'll probably make mistakes all the way up to my deathbed. I'll probably get the probably get my treatments wrong. I don't know what it is. I will I will continue to make mistakes. And knowing that fills me with, you know, perhaps a certain fear, but also like, you know, 
this is who I am. And in fact, this is who all of us are. We are flawed. We're flawed deeply. We are, we are incomplete. We are uncertain. And so if that's the case, then, you know, why not just do the best we can find, find moments of peace and transcendence with the ones that we love, find moments of beauty in the things that we do, whether it's reading a book or going for a walk or, you know, uh, taking passion in our work. Um, you know, for example, uh, in getting ready for this podcast, podcast, you know, I was taking a nap before this, so I'd set a little timer and, you know, I made sure I went and freshened up and, you know, these, these are all these little, these little things that make our, make our day-to-day live lives momentous and meaningful. And I feel like I've actually, I found a certain kind of peace. I, I don't have grand ambitions. I don't feel the need to conform to, you know, overwhelming strictures of any kind. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that in some sense is is tremendously liberating. I feel like certain burdens or certain impositions of how I was supposed to live my life have been lifted for me. I'm still living my life in a very conventional way. After all, I'm a you know, I have a nine to five job. I haven't gone off to the mountains and live like a hermit. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'm pretty close to the mountains uh, and I go there quite often and I'd like to retire there. But I'm living a pretty mundane life. But I think in this very straightforward mundane life, I find moments of transcendence. And I think that's all I can aspire for. And that's all I, I want to aspire for. And I think, you know, when these moments happen, I take them as they come, I treasure them, and then they pass on. And I think that's, you know, that's all I can expect. You know, the sun rises, it's beautiful. Uh, I know it'll become hot and then it'll sun, you know, the sun will set again. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be back. And, you know, you, you, you find yourself taking more and more, as it were, pleasure out of the simple pleasures of life. You know, mm-hmm. the, the things that we've always been told were the true pleasures of life. We've always been told these things. Friendship, love, affection, companionship, um, intellectually simulating our minds through, you know, music or poetry or drama, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. In that sense, life isn't complicated. But in many other ways, of course, it's the most terrible challenge of ours. So I think it's not like I've found some grand scheme for my life. I think I've actually retreated into simplicity and found pleasure there. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that I've become cured of anxiety. Mm-hmm. I fully expect to be anxious for the rest of my life. But I also know that within those moments, I will find little moments of peace. And that's all I can or should expect. Absolutely, I love that so much. And then, so Alan, any final questions before we go? Oh, yes, uh, Samir, if we wanted to follow your work either online or on social media, how could we find you? I think the best way to follow my work is just through my blog, uh, my webpage, which is just samirchopra.com. My social media presence is a little bit, um, you know, something I'm struggling with just because I don't often, I've actually spent a lot of time on online. uh, So... I have a page on Facebook, you know, which is, you know, Samir Chopra, refusing to stick, stick to the subject. Uh, and on Twitter, I am, I am, I have two Twitter accounts. One is I on the pitch and one is Chopra counselor, which I think you guys tagged earlier. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of opened that new Twitter account because I was trying to get away from my old Twitter account uh-huh. where there was a, there was a whole different sort of world that I was exposed to, which was actually bringing me down mentally. Uh, mm. But, you know, I'm going to try and make that very problematic tool work for me again. But I would say samirchopra.com mm-hmm. is the best place that people can find me. They'll find all my writings online. 
Mm-hmm. I have thousands of articles that I've written on my blog uh, over the last eight years. And I actually consider that that writing at my blog to be actually one of my proudest achievements um, in the sense of, you know, I, I feel like I've really poured a lot of myself out into those, uh, into those posts. And we'll, we'll, help, we'll help you gain a following on Twitter. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. <laughs> and then, so, so what is the book that you're working on? I am working on a book, uh, which interestingly enough is called Anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. a philosophical guide. I mean, that's the current title. Who knows? We might come up with a more colorful title. It's with Princeton University Press. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I'm going to finish it by next year. So one of the things I'm going to do in my sabbatical is basically work on this, uh, on this uh, book on anxiety. And I'm going to try and you know, make many of the points that I made to you already. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to start with a little bit of a personal introduction. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to take folks through uh, a survey of some philosophical theories about anxiety. And of course, with my own particular takes and interpretations of them, which mm-hmm. you know, other philosophers might not agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also to make the point that philosophy and anxiety are very intimately related. Uh, awesome. I have an essay coming out in Psych magazine, which is part of Eon now, where I'm essentially going to be arguing that um, philosophy and anxiety are, as it were, interwoven because these questions that philosophers are asking, as you know, William James would have said, these questions that we ask, they're questions to, the answers to which we sense are really important and we want to get them right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so it's kind of, kind of a tour of philosophy, but also my own, uh, you know, my own um, particular takes and interpretations of this relationship. Awesome. And we hope that you'll be back on when the book is released. Mm-hmm. I certainly hope so. Yes, very much. Very much so. Was, and thank you, thank you for having me on today. Thank, thank, you, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a pleasure. Great. Thanks very much. All right, Samir. I hope you have a good night. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. All right. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. That was super insightful. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, uh, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. And it sees underscore podcast on Twitter. Uh, like, subscribe, hit the bell, <laughs> hit the bell, <laughs> right? And on YouTube. <laughs> and then you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us under the STM podcast section. And thank you very much for watching and look forward to the next episode.